You are listening to a sermon from Restoration Church, a gospel-centered, biblically-saturated church located in Noblesville, Indiana. To learn more, visit restoration.community. Return to Me, that's been the title of our sermon series. We haven't talked about it a whole lot. We haven't given it much attention. Return to Me. It implies that we are not currently where God expects us to be or desires us to be. Return to me. It's really the theme or the answer to the question of what does God want from his people when we come across the Old Testament. It's not the theme of the Old Testament itself, but it's the theme or the answer to what God expects from his people, to return to him. And we see this exact phrase or very close variant of the phrase, return to me, in Deuteronomy, Exodus, 2 Chronicles, Isaiah, Psalms, Jeremiah, Joel, Hosea, Amos, Nehemiah, Zechariah, and now Malachi 3. So it's obviously a theme that God, uh, that is important to God. And so he uses these words, return to me, both in dark times, like we would expect, but he also uses it during high times, hopeful times. We see it used in Zechariah when things are hopeful, the temple's being rebuilt. He still says, return to me. He's consistent in his call to his people to return to him. So let's open to Malachi 3 if you're not already there. And we're gonna continue to look at these disputes that the people of God bring against God. These, as Justin pointed out, these really these legal disputes that are based out of this covenant language Um, against God. And the first three that we looked at, if you're trying to catch up, was that they questioned if God loved them. They despised his name by making lame sacrifices. And they turned against God and they turned against their wives by embracing divorce and idolatry. And so today we're going to look at the, the, the second three disputes, and really the final three disputes here in chapter three. And also just to catch you up real quick, if there's, there's a little bit of context that's important, I'm not gonna do a, a, a ton of backtracking here, but the one thing that's important to know as we go forward here is that this is an economically depressed time for the uh, Israelites. They have um, not that long ago um, returned from exile. The temple has been rebuilt, things were hopeful, and now here we are just a few generations later, 70 years later, things are as bad as they ever have been, their relationship with God. So that's where, we, that's where we are, and I'm actually gonna back up to verse 17 of chapter two. That's where we'll start. That's where Brad left off last week. And we're gonna break this into three chunks, so we're not gonna read the whole thing through. We're gonna break this into three chunks, and with each dispute, we're gonna talk about what is being said and why it matters to us today. So, chapter two, verse 17, and I'm reading from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. You have wearied the Lord with your words, Yet you ask, how have we wearied him? When you say everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight, and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? See, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you desire. See, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire in the cleansing lie. He will be like a refiner and purifier of silver. 
He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in the days of old and years gone by. I will come to you in judgment and I will be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the widow and the fatherless and cheat the wage earner, and against those who deny justice to the foreigner. They do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Because I, Yahweh, have not changed, you descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. Okay, so right off the bat, we see that they bring two questions against God in this dispute. What is being said? They're saying everyone who does evil is good in the Lord's sight, and God is pleased with them. Now this, again, comes from covenant language, as Justin pointed out in chapter one. This comes from covenant language. What they're saying is that back, if you look back in Deuteronomy, in certain places, the way the covenant worked was that he would list certain sins and says, anybody who does these evil things is detestable in my sight. And so the Israelites have flipped that around and said, you don't even respect that anymore. People who do things that are evil in your sight, you call them good and you're pleased with them. Right, so their own treachery amongst themselves had um, become a form of injustice in their minds, right? They're saying, some people aren't being punished enough, not me, but those people, they need to be punished for what they're doing. You don't even love justice anymore, God. And the second question they bring against them is, where is the God of justice, right? This is not the same thing as asking, God, where is your justice? Like as David does throughout the Psalms, especially Psalm 7. When David does this, he says, God, I know you are a just God, and I deserve to be under your justice just as much as my enemies. But right now, if I have any chance against my enemies, I need your justice. Please bring your justice. That's a lot different than saying, where is the God of justice? So they felt, the Israelites felt that they were doing just enough, checking off the right boxes, doing enough of the covenant work, and they deserved better treatment. And we see God's response, right? God's response to them. He doesn't take on their arrogant accusation head on. He doesn't do that. Basically what he's saying, he says, my justice. <laughs> you haven't even begun to see my justice. I'm sending a messenger to clear the way, a messenger of this covenant that you so desire. He is coming. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he comes? I have given him the full authority of judgment over all the earth, and he will be perfectly just. He is like a fire that burns so hot, so pure, that even your best priests, the priests of Levi back in the glory days, they will look like a tainted piece of silver that needs to be refined in the fire. Oh, I will come with justice, says God. I will bear witness against the adulterers and the liars and those who don't love the orphans and the widows and those who do not fear me. I will bring justice. And he says, the only reason you haven't already been destroyed is because I, Yahweh, haven't changed. I haven't wavered in this covenant like you have. That's the only reason that you're still here today. You think you want my justice but you're not ready for my justice yet, not my full justice. And that's his response. He doesn't take it head on. So I think, um, so why does this matter to us today? I think this attitude that the Israelites have here is similar 
to what we see both in the church and out of the church, um, this attitude of saying there can't be a God that loves justice if he allows things like cancer and genocide and slavery to happen. There just can't be. And we get angry that God doesn't dole out justice the way that he think we, the way that we think he should dole out his justice. In a way, what we're saying to God is that we expect God to serve us. We expect him to bow down to our health, our comfort, our prosperity. What we're saying is, God, how, how can you love justice when my family member, my friend is going through this, this, uh, this painful, deadly disease? When the man across the street from me who's living happily in sin, nothing bad happens to him, his life is fine. Where is this God of justice? I've never seen him show up before. And so we might not say those exact words, but I think all of us, including myself, have been there through certain seasons in life or certain events in life where we say, God, where is, where is your justice? And so we have to guard against this. God takes his own justice very seriously. And if we come to scripture doubting that God is just, if we come to try to make sense of, life of life's events, doubting that God is just, we're just gonna be stuck in bitterness. We're never gonna move past being bitter and our relationship with the Lord is never gonna grow. So we have to guard against that. And we guard against that by being in scripture and praying for his wisdom and praying for his guidance. Okay, so now if we pick up in verse seven, this transitions us to the second dispute that they have. But first, God kind of clarifies, he, he kind of does address what he means in the first section. In verse seven, he says, since the days of your fathers, you have turned from my statutes, you have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pause there. So he's clarifying what he was talking about earlier. He says, he sees right through their arrogant accusations. Right? He says, he knows that they sincerely believe that they've upheld the covenant. He says, this is not the case. You haven't kept my statutes from forever, for hundreds of years. Not your fathers, not you. You've never kept my statutes. And just in this part, you know, as Rob prayed today, this part's, this really hit me this week, preparing to, to teach on this. Um, this is, I would like, right here, I would expect at this juncture for God's anger to rightfully boil over, to really give it to them, to really lay it out for them here. But the very next sentence in the middle of this disobedience is return to me. Return to me and I will return to you. And he offers them a restored relationship right here. He offers them a restored covenant in the middle of their disobedience. Return to me and I will return to you. So do they accept that offer? Well, no, look at the end of verse seven. But you ask, how can we return? Right, they're doubling down on this false pretense that they somehow are covenant keepers. Right, we can't return because we have nothing to return from. We've been here the whole time. We've upholded your, we're upholding your statutes. Right, give us one example how we could, how we could possibly return to you. And in verse eight, God says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. Now, this use of the word rob here is very um, rare use of the word rob. This is only found in two places in Scripture, one in Malachi 3. The other one comes from Proverbs 22, verse 22 and 23. Let me read this for us. Don't rob a poor man because he is poor, and don't crush the oppressed at the gate. For the Lord will take up their case and will plunder those 
who plunder them. Let me read that again. Don't rob a poor man because he is poor and don't crush the oppressed at the gate for the Lord will take up their case and will plunder those who plunder them. And so God is saying, that is what you are doing to me. You're treating me like a poor, powerless man that you could just come into my house and take what you want because I'm too powerless to do anything about, you, about it. That's how you're treating me. And they say, well, how do we rob you? Right, they ask that in, in, in verse eight. How do we rob you? By not making the payments of the 10th and the contributions. Verse nine, you are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full 10th into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not ruin the produce of your land and your vine and your field will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. <clears throat> so they respond by saying, how do we rob you? And God says, by withholding part of your tithe. It's not that they aren't tithing at all. It's that they're, they're bringing part of it. They're being dishonest. They're only bringing part of what the covenant was agreed upon. And there's two things I want to explain in this section that I think will help us with our understanding of, of what's being said here. First is this, in verse nine, it says, you are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. And so what he's talking about here, again, this is this covenant language. Um, I lost my train of thought. You, says, so this is the covenant language. You are under a curse. He's, what he's saying to them is, this is not new to you. This is, uh, you've been under a covenant with me for hundreds of years. You've been in and out of covenants as a vassal uh, for nations around you for, from the beginning of time, basically. You, you know how covenants work. It's very simple. They're, if you do these things, you're, you're promised these blessings. Usually in an earthly covenant, that's things like peace and protection. For God, it says, I'm gonna bless your land. If you don't do these things, or if you do these things that are detestable instead, then punishment is coming, and God's covenant says there's gonna be a curse on your land, among other things. So he says, you know how this works. You are here, you're, you're sitting here calling me unjust because your land is cursed, and I've already told you that if your land is cursed, you're not following the covenant. It's like, how can you not figure this out for yourself? And I think what ha has happened is that given their economic condition, I think they almost certainly felt that since they were poor, the expectations should be lower. Right? God should be happy that they're offering anything at all. And that's not the case. He says, test me in this way. Right? This isn't a new promise. This isn't like God just decided, oh, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this deal extra sweet for you. If you test me in this way, then I'm gonna open up the floodgates of heaven and bless you. This is, this is again, covenant language. This is a, re, a paraphrasing of what he's already said and promised to them in Deuteronomy. This is more of an indictment on them. When he says, test me in this way, and see that I won't bless you. He's saying, I'm still here upholding the covenant. You haven't even tried this yet. You wanna complain that your land is under a curse. You wanna complain that I'm unjust. You haven't even tried to uphold the covenant yet to see what would happen. Try that first, test me in this way. And so God's expectations for them do not change. Right, he says to them, when you are blessed, all the nations will consider you fortunate. 
right? The, the attitude that they have coming into this section here is that we're the unfortunate ones. All the nations around us are the fortunate ones. Look, look what's happening to us. I wish we were more like them. And God says, no, if you would just follow the covenant, I'm gonna bless you and my plan's gonna go forward and you will be considered the fortunate ones. But he doesn't change his expectations based on their circumstances. Right, he doesn't say to them, uphold the covenant unless things get really tough, then I'll just take whatever you can give. He doesn't say to them, like we saw last week in chapter two when Brad was preaching, he doesn't say to them, uphold the covenant of your marriage unless things are going really bad and someone else better comes along, then do whatever you want. So it sounds harsh to some to say that, um, that God's expectations do not change with our circumstances, but it's really good news because that also means that if God's expectations don't change, his promises do not change. And we've been promised a lot under the new covenant fulfilled by Jesus Christ and his blood, not the least of which is eternal life with him. As Brad said earlier, where there is no more sin, there is no more weeping. So why does this matter? Why does our money matter? Why does our tithe matter? Well, Old Testament scholar uh, Bruce Walke, he he wrote a book about Proverbs, and in that he teaches this concise principle that he sums up the book of Proverbs with. He says, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. Let me say that again. The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. So to treat all of our profits, all of our income, all of our assets as if it was solely ours is a mistake. God owns all of our wealth and we are just a steward of his resources. So this means that to some effect, the community around us has some claim on our wealth. And this should inspire us to, to radically give generously, that we can have that we can bring advantage to our community, that we can bring an advantage to God's kingdom. So we give not because we're just trying to satisfy a law that God made about tithing, although that is important. We give because we can bring advantage to our community. We've been entrusted to do that. It's similar to um, if you were a, a money manager, right? When God, when God gives you his assets, he doesn't give up ownership of it when he gives it to you. If you were his money manager, his steward, um, if, if you saw your funds growing for his account, you could, you'd be excited about it, but you're not confused about whose money it is, right? If you did get confused, you'd be liable, and that's called fraud. God would be calling you a fraud. So we're stewards of what he gives us. So we use everything that we've been given to bring him glory. So when you sit down to plan how much you're going to put in the offering basket, whether that's virtually or physically, or how much you plan to give away to parachurch ministries or missionaries around the world, don't do it with sitting in front of a calculator in a spreadsheet. Do it while soaked in the gospel of Jesus, sitting in front of the cross. And remember that our purpose, part of our purpose is to bring advantage to our community. You know, this reminds me, I'm not gonna read it for time's sake, the parable of the talents, right? I think this is relevant here. And Jesus tells this parable of the money managers. 
what we're just talking about. And he's, um, there's the parallel of this king that's going away for a long time, and he has three money managers. One he gives five talents to, one he gives three talents to, and one, the last money manager, he gives one talent to. Now, sometimes we hear that, we hear one talent, and you're like, oh man, that's nothing. One talent is still about three or four months uh, wages. So one talent is still a lot of money. But what happens probably is that the, the one with the one talent compared, compares himself to the others and, and gets nervous. I, I, can't, I, I can't mess this up. I'm just gonna bury what I have. And when the king returns, he just returns that one talent. And the king is furious with him because the other money managers have doubled their money in that time. And he's done nothing with what he's been given. And he says, well, I, I just have this one talent and these other people have so much. And he says, you wicked servant, away from me. So our circumstances do not change what God expects of us. And our circumstances also do not change the promises and the blessings he has made to us. All right, so let's pick up now in verse 13. Verse 13 says, your words against me are harsh, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of hosts? So now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. Let's pause there. This is a very similar accusation to the first dispute, right? Where in the first dispute, um, they said that the God of justice is not here. This is similar. They're, say, they're saying, we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. They test God and escape. Now this last accusation here, that they test God and escape is an especially pointed slap in the face to God because what they're referring to is that not that long ago, that's recorded in the book of Ezekiel, is that when King Nebuchadnezzar um, exiles the, the Judah, the Israelites, to Babylon, he takes the upper class first and he takes the rightful king to Babylon, and a puppet king is established in Judah, and Nebuchadnezzar sets up a covenant as expected, and he's faithful to his covenant, as bad as Nebuchadnezzar was. He was faithful to, Israelite, to the Israelites in that covenant, and um, the puppet king takes things into his own hands, and he goes to Egypt. He goes to the Egyptian pharaoh and says, send me your armies and your horses and your chariots so that we can go fight Babylon, and Egypt says, no. <laughs> And God sends a prophet to talk to, to the Israelites. and says, what did you think was gonna happen? You're under covenant with a great king and you thought you would escape? Did you think you could do this and escape? And so again, the Israelites are turning that on God saying, they test God and escape. You don't have what you used to have anymore. You're not a God of justice. You can't even stop an out of control vassal. You can't bring them under control. That's what we think of you. And I think here too, their heart is completely revealed when they say it is useless to serve God. I think this has really been their, their underlying condition in all six disputes here. It's really what they wanted to say is it's useless to serve you, right? If we trace all of these disputes through to the end, it all gets summed up in this phrase or this question is it useless to serve God? And that's a question we have to wrestle with at some point in our Christian life. I think most of us do, or most of us have. 
Is it useless to serve God? Do the benefits outweigh the risks? And the answer is almost always no. No, the benefits don't outweigh the risk in an earthly sense, right? If we're like the Israelites, if we're looking for significance or success or comfort, or those are the things that we're chasing, then no, serving God is useless because it's not gonna help you in those things. Serving God is only gonna get in the way of your significance, your success, your comfort. You know, it's similar. Jesus tells us in his covenant, he says, pick up your cross daily and follow me. That doesn't necessarily scream uh, significance and success and comfort. Because see, what happened, as I talked about earlier, is that the Israelites, the comparisons is what drove their relationship with God. They were more focused on what God had not done for them or had not given them. And so they looked like they were serving God and they certainly felt like they were serving God, but they were really just serving themselves and they were angry that God would not do the same for them. They didn't wanna be healed. They didn't want their relationship to God healed. They just wanted God's blessings, his stuff, without any further effort on their part. So in a way, they're right. It is useless to serve God in that way, to do it half-heartedly. There's no point in that. And now let's look at the response. Starting in verse 16. It says, at that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord took notice and listened. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared Yahweh and had high regard for his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts a special possession on the day I am preparing. I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. So you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. So this book of remembrance, it's a phrase that's lost on us, but when it's used in context of a kingdom, and a king and his kingdom, it's really the royal archives. It's the, it's the king's archives, king's journal, where the most significant things in that king's reign would be recorded. Right? That's where we get a lot of our history from, from ancient times, is looking at the royal archives. And so what God is saying here, this is amazing to me, he says, the most important thing during my reign as suzerain, as king of kings, as the great king, the most important thing that's happened during my reign is that I've said to my people, return to me, and some of them did. <laughs> that's what he treasures the most. He says they are a special possession on that day, that I would say return to me in the middle of their sin after centuries of disobedience, some of them return to me. And that's what he records in his royal archives, quite literally from what we can tell. So we are his treasured possession. When we stand in Christ, we become sons and daughters who serve him. We stop serving ourselves. We stop chasing significance and those things that I talked about. We start chasing him. So I ask again, is it useless to serve God? No, not if you wanna be healed. <laughs> not if it's healing for your broken, wayward heart that is what you're chasing. If you want to be healed, it is not useless to serve God. So do you want to be healed? God is calling still, return to me. And I wanna fast forward just for a second to end with this verse. I'm gonna borrow 
this verse from chapter four. I'm not stealing it from Justin next week. I'm just, I'll give it back to him when I'm done with it. It says in 4.2, but you, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. So when we are healed completely, on the day that we stand in Jesus' presence and his, his righteousness is like a new sun on a new earth, we, will have, we won't be able to help ourselves but to literally jump for joy like baby cows coming out to the field in the sun. <laughs> How crazy is that? And so I'm gonna leave us with that thought. And if you're here or if you're listening online and you are not a follower of Jesus, Jesus is not your king, God stands and says, return to me and I will return to you. You may not know it, but you already belong to God. <laughs> you might not be following him yet, but he already is chasing you and his call to you is to return to me, to repent, turn from the direction that you're going and return to me. And for those of us who are followers of Christ, for those of us who are in a season of being lost in darkness, of of addiction, of thirst for lust, and things that we're embarrassed to talk about, the call for us is still return to me. Return to me. He used that in the darkest point in Israel's history. He offered them new mercy, new forgiveness. And I don't know what you're going through, but his call is still return to me. You're not too far gone. Return to me and I will return to you. We will fix this relationship. Let's pray and let's take communion together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scripture. We thank you for the written words of the prophets and how they challenge us, how they encourage us. God, my prayer today is simple. I've seen the change in my own life this past two weeks from, from being in Malachi, God, the sin that I wasn't even aware of that I gladly turn over to you now. God, my prayer is that for everyone here, we would experience the same thing, God, that we would hear this call, return to me, we would search our hearts and we would turn everything over to you, God. And we remember what your son Jesus did for us on the cross, God, that he took our place. That should have been us that was, who was nailed to the cross, God. That was our sin that was attributed to him. And that's not lost on us, God. So we gather every Sunday and we take these elements together as one body as we remember the death and resurrection of our great King, God. And we look forward to being in your presence once again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Restoration Church. To learn more, visit us online at restoration.community. If you're in the Noblesville area, join us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. for worship.